Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the first 23 verses here today. Before we do that, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would help us as we open His Word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Holy Word, we pray for wisdom. We pray for guidance. We fear things. We fear the world. We fear the unknown because we do not trust You. We do not trust You because we do not believe Your Word. So Lord, help us. Help us to believe more and more of these things that You have said to us. These, these words that You have given to us, Your people, that You have preserved for time so that we may have them Your Word given to us. We pray that You would not only teach us that we would know more of You, but that You would even use Your Word to transform us, that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen. So as I read this passage this morning, it reminded me of something that I have told my own children since they were little, something that I have told, I tell my students all the time. And this is the idea that the loudest person in the room probably knows the least. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, in a discussion or debate, when a person feels like their point is being threatened, someone who doesn't know a whole lot, is probably unable to defend their point, and then they become agitated and angry. And they probably interpret this as some sort of victory because they can yell louder than everyone else that they have won, almost like an animal trapped in a corner, lashing out with their weapons and seeing that as some sort of victory, attempting to harm anyone and everyone who might threaten this tiny bit of truth that they have. Or it could come across a completely different way, but same sort of thing as a person who attempts to wow their listeners with accolades and attributes to hide the real insecurities and doubts that are there. Any kind of criticism is met with immediate hostility, or they completely shut down, both as a way to deflect or even project the criticisms onto another person. In our text today, we see a classic example of this with King Nebuchadnezzar, whose own insecurities get the best of him. And because of this, he acts out on those around him. Acts out is an understatement for sure. Absolute power does not equate to absolute knowledge. In fact, many of times those things are at odds. It's really easy to see this in our own culture today as systems of thought that stand on flimsy foundations set up defenses that, of course, do not allow any questions at all. Any question is met with hostility. We even have a name for this, right? Our culture kind of has this kind of joking name for this, and it's called the cancel culture. The idea that if you ask a question, you're going to be canceled. 
Well, how's the Christian to respond to this? Well, many Christians respond in kind, unfortunately, because they don't know what they really believe. They grab a hold of their own flimsy understanding of the truth, and they fight tooth and nail, leaving a path of destruction everywhere they go. Rather than acting in wisdom, they patter their response after the pagan world around them. So today as we study the text, we're going to see that Daniel provides for us an appropriate response to the kind of cancel culture that Nebuchadnezzar offered in his world and the kind that's being offered to us today. So as we move through the text, I want to consider two main ideas. First, the fear of the unknown, and then secondly, the fear of the Lord. So let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. The second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we may show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there is there is but one sentence to you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. Therefore, tell the dream or tell me the dream and I will show you. I will know that you can show its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth that can meet the king's demand for no great great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any mag- magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king appoint him a time and that he might show him an interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made known the matter to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon, the wise, with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of that night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So a little bit of context before we get into today's text, just to remember where we're at. Remember the nation of Babylon has taken over Judah, Judah and has taken many of the Jews into captivity. Daniel and his friends are among those who were taken and they have entered into a kind of a assimilation program. Remember last week, Daniel and his friends refused the dietary portion of that assimilation but showed themselves to be far superior than any of the other people in that program. They distinguish themselves so much that we see in in chapter 1, verse 20, that they are ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in all his kingdom. This is significant as we move into a a section concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. There are a few other issues that we need to address in this text. I'm sure you guys have already picked up on one of them. Last week we read that the assimilation program was three years long. Remember that specific date? Whereas this week we read that in the second year of the king's reign, he was going to call Daniel. Whereas the before we read it was three years. Many, uh, For many, this incongruity kind of creates a problem of faith. The unbeliever will use something like this to call out contradictions in the Bible and say, see here, the Bible's not even really cohesive with itself. And then the believer will take something like this and worry themselves about the minute details of the text, all the while missing the big picture. And on top of that, there's another issue that's kind of hidden under the surface of this text, and you might miss if you if you weren't doing a more scholarly approach, but there is a little hint to it here. Much of Daniel, including this chapter, is not written in Hebrew, but is written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a language that is still in use in small portions of the world. But at the time that Daniel was written, or the time that we believe it to be written, that language was not used as extensively. And for many, they'll say, see, this means that Daniel was written much later, and so the prophecies in this book were obviously written after they had already been fulfilled. And so, see, none of this is really true anyway. And I only bring this up to pair with it the former issue about the timeline that I pointed out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not have to answer every little problem that we find in the Bible. Just because we can't provide an answer for every little problem that we find in the Bible does not mean that God's word isn't true and that we should not hold to it by faith. I don't understand how the brakes on my car work either at all. I just had to have the brakes replaced on my van and I'm so thankful that other people know what they're doing because I would not be able to drive my car ever again. But I still use my brakes. Still use them. I don't understand 100% how my brain works either. I have some knowledge of that as a biology teacher, but not a whole lot. In fact, science doesn't really know about how a lot of our brain works, but it doesn't stop us from using it. Now, I can learn about those things, just like I should attempt to know more about God and learn more about His Word and constantly be searching it out. In fact, we ought to know more about God. He commands that of us. Yet my lack of knowledge does not negate the truth of God's word. 
So stop worrying yourself to death about everything that you don't know. and Instead, grab a hold of the plain truth that we see. We see this, we really see this with Nebuchadnezzar as we are going through our text today. And that brings us to our first point, the fear of the unknown. Look with me again at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Even though this king has taken over one of the great civilizations of the time, he can't sleep because his dreams are bothering him. Nebuchadnezzar was an imposing figure, not because he was necessarily a physically tough man, but because he had lots of power. He had lots of people and armies and things and money at his disposal. Yet he had a dream that was bothering him to the point that he's gathering his counsel around him to tell him his dream. And notice... This is not simply interpret his dream, but to actually tell him his own dream. We all understand what it means to forget a dream shortly after we wake up. It's pretty normal. You're having this really neat dream and you wake up and it's like it's like a vapor. It just kind of disappears. And you're like, I wish I could remember that. It was so cool. We might even understand what it means to share a dream with someone else and listen to someone else's dream and and wonder, well, what do you think that means? There's been a whole industry built around the idea that we can interpret our own dreams and make something of them that actually makes sense in the real world, whether or not it's true. Lots of false teachers have convinced those that teach that they have dreams and that they usually have dreams about giving them money or buying them a new jet or something, which is just crazy. But Nebuchadnezzar's request to tell them his dream... And what are they they going to do if he can't? Well, it says in verse 5 that you shall be torn limb from limb. If you can't tell me what my dream is. And your house is going to be laid in ruins. Well, what follows from those magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans is an attempt to reason with him. And his response is that they think that they're colluding. Well, you're just trying to conceal the truth. He can't trust his dreams, and now he can't trust his magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans to interpret his dreams or even tell them what his dreams are. And so Nebuchadnezzar is afraid. They even tried sound theology with him, which is kind of funny coming from a pagan. Look at verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult because no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. No one can know this kind of thing but God. Flesh and blood cannot know the inner working of someone else's mind. We already know this, right? We know that we can't get into someone else's head and see what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar knew this too. Surely he did. But yet this truth infuriated him. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Because Nebuchadnezzar was afraid, everyone had to die. This is just like the world that we live in, unfortunately, or the world that we create for ourselves. When your hopes and securities are set on things that will soon pass away, you can't help but be afraid. All the king's life was about the here and now, the things that he could do the things that he had. And with that, of course, there's no hope for security. And because there's no inner peace, there can be no peace with other people either. Everyone 
is going to be, or you're going to be hostile toward everyone, just like the loudest person in the room with very little substance to defend. They get loud and they get violent and they want to take that aggression off on everyone. This isn't uncommon to Scripture at all, this idea that we see here. Frankly, it's not uncommon to any society ever or people in general. Friedrich Nietzsche, very a very popular or famous atheist, I think famous is a better word, uh, in the 19th century, whose popularity has really sadly only grown since his death, he said this concerning the knowledge of God. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? In other words, if I'm insecure about this little bit that I know, then I'm going to fight anyone who questions it, even just a little bit. I will be God over this tiny little truth that I have drummed up in my mind. Plainly see this play out in our own society with this new concept of what has been called identity politics that you're all familiar with. We are taught that our identity is crucial, right? And that even something as simple as like a mental health issue or sexual perversion, which is not simple at all, or even something that we just kind of make up. I can just make up and say this is what I am and no one is allowed to question it. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Take mental health, for instance. Mental health issues are very real, so don't hear me saying anything wrong about that. In fact, with increasing awareness, more and more people are able to get help. These issues that have become stigmatized by our culture over time are slowly being destigmatized, which is very good. Yet something I regularly hear concerning mental health is they'll say, well, my, and then they'll give me some acronym or some, some sort of disorder that has been, been named. And they'll say, well, that causes me to, and then they'll name some sort of sinful behavior that they're trying to say, it's okay for me to do this because my brain doesn't work. Or I can't do this or say this because of my, and then they'll list again some sort of condition. And if you dare question it, well, then you're called insensitive at best. At best. At worst, you could even lose your job or be socially drawn and quartered. Why aren't questions allowed? Because that person is afraid. Something's wrong. Mental health is a really, you know, mental health is a, is a real issue. So they're afraid, they're insecure, which is okay to be those things. But because no peace can be found within, they allow their hostility to incinerate everyone around them. Sexual perversions, gender, gender dysphoria are very much the same way. If you dare alter an, if you dare offer an alternative view or disagree with this identity that they have chosen for themselves, then you are a bigot or some sort of phobe, or the worst kind of person. Why? Not because you've actually done something wrong, but because you've dared to create doubt. You've dared to question their reality. And why aren't questions allowed? Because they're already holding on to this tiny truth with slippery hands as is. And the slightest bit of disruption can cause any hope of inner peace to be lost. So you have to suffer for those questions. Nebuchadnezzar, as rich and powerful as he was, was an afraid little boy 
when it came to his dreams. And because he was afraid, because no one could give him the peace that he sought, everyone had to die. Church, I want to offer something to you here. Every inner turmoil that we have comes from our inability to remember that Christ is our source of peace. And every interpersonal problem that we have is because the gospel that we have chosen is a gospel other than the one that Christ preaches. And the gospel that we have chosen isn't working. So everyone around us has to suffer. And while I'm talking about death here figuratively, this kind of suffering for some murder is the only answer to this problem, sadly. This is evidenced by a recent school shooting that we had where someone who was mixed up personally was desperate to take it out on the people that they thought were to blame. Or the workplace shooting that we had in Louisville where a former employee's tiny truth was threatened, so they took it out on everyone else. Murder is one form that this takes. Sexual sin is another form that this takes. Christians who commit adultery will often blame their spouse for a lack of intimacy. But really, it's their lack of intimacy with Christ that is to blame. Because their false God could not satisfy, they went and looked for another. Any sin can be traced to the fact that we're afraid of losing something. That we're afraid of not getting what we think that we deserve. That's why the writer of Proverbs begins their book by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the unknown leads to death. The fear of the Lord leads to wisdom and life. Daniel shows him he fears by how he responds to this situation. So look with me. The next point, the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So now because no one can get inside Nebuchadnezzar's head and read his mind, people are going to die. And Daniel and his friends are among those who are going to die for no reason whatsoever. Arioch was this executioner that was sent around to kill all the wise men. But Daniel gets to him first. And he does so with prudence and discretion are the words that the ESV chooses. In the original language, the word here kind of paints a picture for us. It's an interesting word. that It, it paints a picture of kind of like... Um, how you say, almost like a wine taster, like someone who's able to taste different kinds of wines and be able to discern them, or like a different kinds of coffee and be able to say, well, this one's got a slight something, something, something that I couldn't even begin to understand or articulate, someone who's got some wisdom concerning those things. The word there is literally taste. It's an odd choice for a word that he that, that he has a proper understanding, Daniel, of the situation, and that the man himself, in order to get a particular result, this man, Arioch. And notice Daniel's question. I love his question in verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? This man has come to kill Daniel and his friends. And Daniel asked him a question. I don't get it. What's going on? Why is this so urgent that you had to come and kill us? Daniel didn't beg for his life. He went and spoke to this guard with wisdom and poise, with 
with tact, with taste. One of the things that will continue to mark Daniel's life is that he is well thought of by the Babylonians. And it's not because he compromised his values. It's not because, well, he was able to act a little bit Babylonian, so they liked him okay. It's actually quite the opposite. We never see Daniel compromise his values once. It's because he was a man of wisdom and conviction that he had respect among the pagans. Because Daniel knew that he didn't need to fear them, but he needed to fear the Lord of them instead. Daniel knew that he could help the king. He requested to see the king there in verse 16, and he was granted an audience with the king rather than being killed by using wisdom and prudence. And notice the first thing that he does when he's given this impossible task to read the mind of Nebuchadnezzar and also interpret his dream. When he's given this impossible task, he goes to his friends and they pray together. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made this matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, from the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the men of Babylon. So when he had this great impossible task to do, he went and found his friends and they prayed together. Notice the difference between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar here. Both were faced with difficult situations, yet Nebuchadnezzar feared the unknown and struck out at everyone around him. Daniel feared the Lord and then went to the Lord in prayer. The king's method received a response of fear and death. Daniel received an answer from the Lord. Daniel received an answer from the Lord, verse 19. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. His response then is worship. And he writes this poem, perhaps even sings a song to the Lord, verses 20 and following. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong the wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Daniel knows who's really in charge, and he knows it's not him. Rather than agree with Nietzsche, Daniel would say, there is a God, and I know that I'm not him. What a fantastic piece. Rather than feeling the need to defend some tiny bit of truth, that we have called our God, Daniel understands that all truth is God's truth. That God gives wisdom to the wise, that he sets up and he knocks down kings at his own will, that he knows what is in the darkness, yet the light is in him. Daniel, perceiving the darkness all around him, chose not to fear the darkness, the unknown. Rather, he turned to the light. And while evil will be chased away from the light, the child of the light should embrace it, should find peace and comfort and truth. What did Jesus say concerning the light? He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Daniel's life over and over again demonstrates that by faith he knew his Savior 
that by faith he waited for Jesus' day and was glad that he found peace in him, that he feared his Lord rather than the unknown things around him. And I'm sure that there are some here who are in darkness now. And there's some fear there. There's real fear in the darkness and the unknown things of life. But there is no salvation in the darkness. There's only anger, like we see with Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, there's only death. Rather than fear the unknown, for those of you who do not know Jesus, rather than fear the unknown, come to the light. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever confesses that He is Lord and believes that He is raised from the dead can be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. But what about for those of us who are in Christ who still oftentimes are scared of the darkness? 100% we are. The same is for us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, come to the light. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in Him. Only in Jesus can you find peace. Let go of these unknown things. Get out of the darkness. Cling to the One who has made Himself known to us. In Christ alone, Can we find rest for our souls? Cast off the unknown. Rest in Jesus. And the world will change. Not the world itself. The way that we see the world. We'll no longer fear the unknown things of the world when we see them through the lens of wisdom and knowledge. So for you, church, pray to the God of wisdom and tact that you may have wisdom in dealing with the world and pray that He would continue to draw you closer to Jesus the Son. Let's go to Him in prayer.